Right, we're gonna be president, like, just, you know, one after the other, and <laughs> regardless of what we say. So, so Alex, our wonderful comms professional, made fun of us on the last podcast because we didn't introduce ourselves at the beginning of the show. <laughs> Well, we have to talk about Westworld, because Westworld oh, is back. Yeah. And this season is incredible to me. Go on. I I just, I feel like they spent the first season, which was no slouch. Like, the first season of Westworld was a really deep exploration of what it is to be human, what it is to be oppressed, and what kinds of stuff we have to worry about in terms of automation and, and the progress of technology. And I, I think that that's a, a challenging enough story to tell. And, and they did that really well. Now, in the second season, they've taken all that setup. And now they're like, all right, let's talk about the implications. Let's talk about the social consequences mm -hmm. of this kind of technology. Mm -hmm. So do we want to say spoilers at this point? Or do we not want to not get into spoilers and speak in generalities? What do you think? Well, let's... Let, let, let's speak in, in the generality that one of the obvious consequences of these very human-looking androids is that, you know, someone might want one of those bodies for themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which we've talked about in our, in our other show that we've discussed, um, uh, Altered Carbon, right? Mm -hmm where bodies are just called sleeves. They're literally literally called sleeves. And we see the story going in that direction with Westworld. But the part that fascinates me the most about the entire setup, it's okay, no spoilers, is what would obscene amounts of wealth allow people to do? And what are they incentivized to do? And I think this is a story as old as time, which is, seeking immortality, foolishly seeking immortality is, is at the root of so many stories, man versus nature. You know, when Absolutely. you learn, when, you, when you're a kid and you learn man versus nature, man versus man, man versus uh, the, what, what is it? Supernatural. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's sort of all three of those things. But at the root is this just unyielding, insatiable appetite for wealth and what wealth can do and how and, and, and to live forever with it. That's right. And to live out every fantasy forever. It, it is, it's haunting at a minimum. And if you look at it through a social justice lens, which of course, and in Westworld's case, you have to like, like you ha you this have is to. such a story about social justice it, on it is so many layers. It is. And it, it is in the way that Blade Runner was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I often, when we talk about science fiction, I go back to Blade Runner, and I think I was at just such a formative age when that movie came out to understand that creatures other than humans or the animals that I know, right, the animals that I see and I'm, and I'm aware of, but something else, something either not of this earth or created by humans is deserving of something, dignity, rights, a voice, a vote, you know, it's a big autonomy. question mark. Autonomy. And it, it is absolutely where we are headed in our current conversations around AI. It's absolutely where we're headed. And I love that in popular culture right now, we have a, a, a fresh reference point to say, is that, is that how we want it to look? Because I don't think I want it to look like that. Um, that's what I love about season two. What's compelling for me about how Westworld is looking at this is... Yes, we're going to have to grapple with this when it comes to AI and, and computing machines and systems that become sufficiently complex that we can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. I, I think part of the issue that we have in our culture right now is that we can't tell when humans are human, some of us. That's right. And I think that Westworld talking through the consequences of dehumanization, uh, there's this, this wonderful line spoken by Dolores early on this season where, where she's musing to one of the wealthy guests caught in the park after a, a pretty cataclysmic event. She muses to this person, did you ever think what would happen if there was a reckoning? <laughs> Which of course you and I think about every day. What would a reckoning really look like? <laughs> right. And 
I, I think that that is a question that we as a culture need to be answering on a lot of levels right now because there are so many systems right now that treat certain people as second class in order to keep the machines of wealth running. And, and so much like Westworld, at some point, there's got to be a moment of reckoning because these are real human beings with real uh, needs and hopes and desires, and they've got, they've got things to say. And that's, that moment is coming for our culture in a way that makes Westworld look really kind of scarily prescient. One of my favorite things that's happening right now is happening on Twitter in the face of all of these, you know, white people calling the cops on black folks who are just living their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite things about humanity is watching humanity come together in hilarious ways to heal a hurt. And it's specifically, we've talked about the importance of black Twitter in the past, but black Twitter's response to the thing that happened here locally at Lake Merritt has been nothing short of genius and extraordinary and in and infinitely hilarious it's not getting old anytime soon the meme with the woman calling the cops the one that you and i shared yesterday was was one the famous yeah, we'll, picture we'll throw of the, a few links yeah. in the show notes <laughs> yeah we'll do that but the one of the obamas the famous picture of them by the window with their foreheads I together and <laughs> then just the woman calling the police just and it's and we laugh because if we don't you know this is something i learned in my family if you don't laugh about it you'll cry about it and I much rather laugh about it and then get to work fixing it. But that, you know, as, as horrible as humanity, hum, humanity can be on one side, look at the other side of the reaction to it. it it's what gets me out of bed every day. Well, and, and I look at the lampooning of these, these characters, uh, this, this woman in particular who called the cops about the cookout. And I see, in addition to, like, you know, the, the immediate self of the humor, I, I think the larger impact of this is a sort of de-gaslighting. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think what this, what black Twitter is succeeding in doing so well here is saying, actually, this is completely absurd. And don't let white supremacy normalize this behavior. That's and right. Every single one of these jokes, these memes on this topic is another crack in the armor of all of the systems that normalize this kind of behavior. Well, the other thing I love is that the rest of us can take cues from it. So then there, you know, the very next week, there's this guy who's yelling, I'm going to call ICE at a, at a, I don't know, at a Aaron w. Schlossberg, yeah. At, at, <laughs> no, at, at, you've, you've memorized his name already. <laughs> oh, no, I, I've, got, I've got a lot to say on, <laughs> but, on Aaron Schlossberg, to be sure. So this is the attorney who was caught on video telling calling people, whatever he called them, for not speaking English, and they were specifically speaking Spanish at his and, local And threatening deli. to call ICE. And threatening to call on these ICE. People. Now, now, ICE, by the way, who is in the process of, like, building military detention centers... For children. ...to, to house children of, of immigrants. And, and so the context in which this is happening is, is incredibly sadistic, and so the act of it is, is very sadistic. Uh, to, to throw that at people in their place of work who have done nothing. They're just, they're speaking in a language that they're comfortable with. Well, yeah, because we don't have an official language in the United States on purpose for this reason. The United States has never had an official language. And that's one of the first things I love to break to people when they start complaining about non-English speaking in public places or in schools or whatever. Um, we have a predominant language, but there's no law that protects the use of it in this way. And the thing is, this guy's a lawyer, and he's got his practice. And so what, what I was going to say earlier was that in part because black Twitter sets such a high bar for, for clever responses. For to, roasting these people. For roasting people, but also cleverly. Like, mm -hmm. this is what's really, really important. Well, well so that, to, that, that's the roast. Like, like the roast yeah. is the artful skewering that's right. of someone who deserves it. That's right. Well, like uh, Michelle, uh, why am Michelle I Wolf. her name? Right, like Michelle Wolf at the correspondence dinner. So today we learned that there are several Latino groups that are Latinx groups. I will get that at some point soon. Uh, several Latinx groups who did things like raise money to send mariachis to this guy's office to serenade him today. And then, um, and then the mariachi said, you know what, we'll do this for free. You don't even have to raise money. The best. Like, like, we're there for <laughs> Which this. Which is just the best. I'm 100%. sorry. 100%. It's just the best thing ever. I cannot tell you how, delight, how, I, how delighted 
my late father would have been at this response. <laughs> and then the response of the mariachis, you know, because they deserve to get paid for their work, but they're like, no, no, gratis, this one's pro bono, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would oh, give anything to be there. And then what's the other one? They were having a Rasa block party or something outside his office. It was That's like perfect. all people from all Latinx backgrounds come and, and hang out. We're going to have a party. That is, you know, we can't do that in the Fergusons. We can't do that in the Charlestons. We can't do that. You know, there are times, though, that we, people who are, have been on the receiving end of this for a very long time, we, we know the direct connection between this and someone dying. And so in a right. moment before, and thank God, where, where nobody died or was physically hurt in this process, to laugh and make sure everybody knows who the fool in this equation is, is so satisfying. It's That's so right. satisfying. I mean, I grew up real isolated in a, in a town that was predominantly white and in my neighborhood, predominantly working class. as one of the only brown kids. When and so I'm you're seeing, cut off when there's fucked up shit. Cut, there's there's no off. community for, for that. That's right. And before the internet. So I was just like, well, I guess my job is to just survive this and then see if there's something better afterwards. Do you know the name Marshall McLuhan? No. He, he wrote a whole bunch of stuff uh, in, I, I think it was in, in around the 70s and 80s, around culture and information. Mm-hmm. And he has this really chilling quote. He says that World War III will be an information war with no division between uh, military and civilian participants. Guess what he got right. (laughs) Tell me that's not what's going on right now. Ding, 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 ding. And the United States, meanwhile, is in kind of a a civil cold war right now, where it's like, we don't don't have, like, guns out a-blazing, but at the same time, we've got factions in this country that want to destroy other factions in this country and we're trying to talk our way out of it well we we do have guns blazing they're just pointed outside our borders right well, that's and real then, and then internally it's guns in the way of the police absolutely and then the violence extends towards you know marginalized people on the border right you were just talking about children basically being put in warehouses these are children who should be in schools Children who should be socializing and playing. People and who should be no with say. their parents. People who should be with their parents. It doesn't, it, you know, people who should not be detained in any way for any reason. Mm-hmm. And so we do wreak this violence, but the way that this violence, what's the quote? These violent. These violent delights will have violent have, ends. Will have, will have violent ends, speaking of Westworld. And so the violence is bolstered by the information war. That's right. You you use information to organize people to enact the violence. And this is a problem Facebook has been dealing with, or rather Facebook has been uh, accused of not dealing with well, especially in the rest of the world. Like people are using Facebook to weaponize literally information, organize pogroms, this kind of thing. That's right. And you know, it's so interesting too, right before we got on, I, I got a text from a friend of mine who's undocumented who said, hey, what do you know about the San Jose airport? And I was like, you know, easy airport. It's small like Oakland, you know, more modern. It, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not bad. Why? And then he writes back. He said, never mind. I looked at the map, and they put customs right in the middle, like, like a, you know, border patrol and customs right in the middle of the airport, and I mm. am too scared to go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay extra and fly into somewhere else because I just look at the wrong person the wrong way, and that's it. There and you I are. was just like, this is, this is my country. This is my country. This is happening right now. This is my friend who lives down the street who asked me this question in earnest. And of course, I, I having the privilege of being a, a U.S. citizen, didn't think that that was what he was asking, right? right? Like, oh, parking is great, blah, 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 blah. And then every day you go, wait a minute, nope, there's a violent system that's actually causing people to make really messed up, to have to make really messed up decisions. And it right. literally costs them money and safety. Well, <laughs> did, did you know that uh, there are some of us who have so much money, <laughs> they, don't, they don't know what to do with it. Um, and, and so their best guess, rather than using it to reform these systems or end poverty or 
anything else is, is, is they want to go to space with it. And in what sector do these people of which you speak work uh, primarily? Yeah, they're, they're, they're techies. They're, oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say maybe they're teachers. No, not teachers. No, we're not, paying, we're not paying the teachers so much. We're not paying teachers so much money that they've got no idea what to do with it. Lord. So Danilo's referring to a uh, story that, that came out last week. Maybe it was the week before. Jeff Bezos, $131 billion saying, all I can think to do with this money is invest in space travel. Space travel, $131 billion. Um, look, I love thinking about learning about imagining uh, what uh, us living extraterrestrial lives is going to look like. I love it. Absolutely, I'm here for it. I think it's worth Same. investing. I love space. However, it's the I love edge space. of what's possible. I yes. love it. It's it's everything that's it, like fascinating to me from as a as a tech nerd. I am also extremely passionate about people eating, and people having a having safe housing place. Oh yeah, to sleep every night, and people not being pulled apart by their families. And so, I living in the Bay Area am quite. Uh, Am, am, am quite intimately familiar with the, the whole new class of, of tent cities that we have. And it's not new. You know, we've always had some element in the, in the Bay Area of this as long as I have lived here. Um, but the extraordinary growth, the speed with which these communities are being put together and the number of raids, regular raids that, that happen. And I'm not, we're not talking about some far-flung place. We're literally talking about the Bay Area. I drive to our clients, uh, one of our clients who is in downtown Oakland, and just yesterday bumped into a police raid of a, of a tent city that I hadn't actually seen before. And this is just driving on my regular way to work. And, and I think about a guy who has, is in this industry and in the industry that has been largely responsible in my hometown uh, for displacement. I know that he's in Seattle, but I also know that he's here a lot. And yeah, I but, know that Seattle you know has the same issues. Seattle not only has the same issues, he makes this statement about like, look, I got so much money, I don't know what to do with it, so we're going to space. He makes this statement, and not a week later, we find out that Seattle is in the process of attempting to tax large corporations so that they can use the money to pay for housing for the homeless. And what do we do? We, we hear that Amazon is thinking about canceling expansion plans if the city goes forward with this tax. That's right. And, and so he's got, he's got so much money because he won't use it to pay his rent as a citizen of his community. That's how well, we end up here. Well, the other stories that then came out simultaneously, which we've been paying attention to for a while, are Amazon workers who are uh, having to utilize public assistance Specifically, oh, yeah. specifically SNAP or food stamps, um, the rates of depression and injury and uh, suicide in the warehouses, and the fact that a significant number of people under his, his charge do not make a living wage. And so you go, all right, I know that I live in a capitalist society. I'm well aware of that. And now the extremes have... have gone so, so far to their respective uh, places that we're back to the days of the Rockefellers and the Carnegie. This is some Gilded Age shit, absolutely. This is, uh, this is some, these are, these are the robber barons. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I will say, and Leland Stanford, yes, I know he was a robber baron. And, uh, Come collect your people, Nicole. <laughs> And so here he is, $131 billion. The people who literally wear the logo that he invented and the company that he founded on their backs aren't able to feed themselves or their families without public They're, they're not able to piss comfortably, man. Like, Oh, man, like that's the other one I heard. Woo! The, the rigors of working in an Amazon warehouse and the, the standards and quotas that these folks need to meet, they, they can't even comfortably use the bathroom when they need to. Mm-hmm. That's right. That, that I don't know if y'all saw the story. We can put it in our show notes about people relieving themselves in, in jars. In bottles. Because, in yeah. bottles, yeah, because they can't leave their station. The interesting thing is I actually talked to my grandmother about this, and she worked on a warehouse floor for 
mm, almost 50 years. And she assembled parts for um, uh, engines in airplanes and spacecraft. Oh, wow. And yeah, she's, her stories are amazing. Um, but she, I was, we were talking about this. I was visiting her, and it was a story in the paper. And then she said, oh, that's what it used to be like when I, when I worked. I can't believe that they've come full circle like that. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I was pregnant with your mother. I was on the warehouse floor. And then we would get one bathroom break in an eight-hour period. And for pregnant uh, women, too? for everybody, it didn't matter. Good for pregnant Lord. women, and not only did you only have one break, you had to be escorted to the bathroom because if you stayed in there too long, somebody would take you back out onto the floor. And so I said, "Well, you can't hold it when you're pregnant, like you're, you know, like that's just." I said, "What did you do?" And she just gave me a look, like, like you know, it was bottles and jars and whatnot. I'm sure, but she said she had one friend who used to hide her in a in a box. She got a big giant box. And she would say, um, she would cover for her if people would come, come around and she lined it with newspapers and she would get my, my grandmother off her feet and then lie to the supervisors because she was like, you can't, your baby, you and your baby are going to be hurt if you're, if you keep doing this, you keep holding it in and standing up. And she said, I bet I know what it's like in that, in that Amazon warehouse. And I just was like, and and what, what time frame was this where this would have been happening? uh, So this was like, you know, end of world war two and then into the the eighties. So, so we're talking about decades of what should be progress Mm -hmm. and, and workers are, are just still not getting a good deal. They're just not. And I know that we talk a lot about the professional class of workers in, in our field, in tech, and the trials and tribulations of, of engineers and designers and, and the like. And they're very real. They're very, very real. I just worry but we, sometimes. We both had working class parents. We yes. had a working class upbringing. Yes, that is, that is correct. And all I, work shouldn't hurt is Correct. basically the thing that, that I keep coming back to. Work shouldn't hurt. And this is something unions have been saying and labor organizers have been saying for a long time. Work shouldn't hurt. And I never want us to lose sight of the fact that while we are dealing with very real things inside our offices, in front of our computer screens, we also often are, are part of a larger ecosystem where there are working class people who are not afforded nearly the same benefits and, and privileges as we are. And I hope that some of our conversations around uh, corporate culture and diversity and inclusion will continue to, to make sure we cover that part of the sector as well. That's right. You want to talk about one-on-ones? Yeah, let's talk about one-on-ones. So You, back you to had the- a great week this week. I did. Thank you. You, you, you did some training this week. I did. And... I, I, I guess you had a pretty excited response to some of that. Is that, is that right? I did. I was doing sort of uh, general management training that is, uh, you know, stuff that, that VIA put together with the, steeped in research and all the things that we like to do. And in being able to strip down uh, management responsibilities and management theory to its parts, and then help people rebuild it, there was so much relief. And I think the the feedback that I got was that there was relief for people as managers that now they have a structure where they can keep, you know, all of their, their, the people they're responsible for in a framework that, that, that is good for them. But then also the structure, uh, the structure is we're, we're, Talking about inclusive management theory, where your primary responsibility is to make sure that you're building a system that all people who would join your team could participate in fully, right? And so... You, you think that is someone's job when they're a manager is, is I, to be doing that? I absolutely think this is the most fundamental part of a manager's job, to make sure that the rules are drawn and the policies and procedures and cultural norms and channels of communication are drawn so that everybody who's on that team can participate fully, and sometimes it's obvious, like you, you know, some of your team is co-located and some of your team is remote, so you have to pick time zones that work for everybody. That's just real. That's a real act of inclusion to make sure that your team meetings happen at a time where nobody's up in the middle of the night. Uh, by the same token, it you need to be a little ahead of ahead of the game when you're talking about things like workload and um, whether or not you evaluate people. Uh, 
equitably and fairly as opposed to I treat everybody exactly the same, which is actually not what you want to do. The difference between equality and equity is right. what we talked about. So inclusive management is the thing, and it is a, an important building block of a strong company culture. And then inside that, on the team, the fundamental building block of the team, and therefore you know, a functional area and therefore the company, is the one-on-one. The, the I, I would dare to say sacred time that is regular, is not scheduled over all the time, is not flaked on between a manager and their direct report. And so in my trainings, I've been able to talk to people about how often they should happen and what's the content and how do you keep track of the content and what are you really trying to get at? And, and, and this, I, this is not us talking out of our ass. This, this, <laughs> this is, this is hard-won experience about how this, this kind of stuff works because I know for you and me, Nicole, but the one time in our working lives where we were most fucked working <laughs> together was a period where, for very good reasons, we just could not make regular one-on-ones That's happen. Right. That's absolutely right. And over a very small period of time, because we weren't getting that regular communication, we just found things falling apart. We were surprised by shit. We were... Um, not on the same page in our expectations, and it just, it just made things so hard, it and it was such it a simple fuck-up that got us to mm-hmm. that place. It was. It was a basic... It's one of those things where, like, y- you can see professional ball players. you know, if, if you're watching a baseball game, occasionally the ball goes between a pre- professional uh, ball player's legs, right? And they're like, how did I miss that ground ball? That was like a routine ground ball, and it's like... Yeah, you got, you got a little lazy there. You took your eye off it. Your mind was already somewhere else, and it's the same thing, which is so easy to have happen in the workplace, especially if you're at a time crunch for some big ship. But you cannot squander that time. You cannot, you cannot throw it away because it is what is going to help you ensure that people can perform to the best of their abilities, that they're growing in their careers, that they want to stay working for you and working at that company, that they're collaborating well with their teammates, that they're... That they're not imagining a whole bunch of awful (laughs) things that aren't true because you've got an information vacuum that's formed. That's right. And and that is what's really important about the one-on-ones is it is the antidote to to the rumor mill. It is antidote to gossip and imaginations running away with people. So the most rational people in the absence of information from their manager can come up with really elaborate conspiracy theories. Absolutely. And then that, that just becomes normal. We, we, used to, we used to have a, a joke at one company I worked at that like when people have been away from headquarters for a while and they were out traveling to the remote sites, they would get a certain kind of uh, paranoia mm-hmm. that it was like, you know, be careful when you're out there. Don't be on the road too long. You'll get this paranoia because you're not involved in the day-to-day activities of headquarters. And you're and, not and, there And that a- was a, a situation, by the way, where the organization was struggling to include people. Okay. It, it, was, it, was, it was a partly remote company. And the organization was struggling to include people mm-hmm. in places that were not headquarters and and so the the lack of inclusion generated all of this noise all of this consternation and anxiousness Uh that's right but when you say look the best remedy for all of this is a strong reliable one-on-one that is that that can solve so many of your problems because the problems that really trip up companies don't tend to be technical problems they don't tend to be a problem that we're not you know, doing marketing the right way, therefore the company is going to fail. That's actually not what happens. What happens is people start to fail each other, and then the culture start, what culture you have starts to erode because there's a lack of trust, and people's imaginations start to really run wild. Or th- it is what's happening, and, and it's not your imagination. I don't mean to gaslight people. Yeah, people are doing shady stuff in your company, and now it, you can really feel it because nobody's being transparent or honest or, or clean with you. So the one-on-one absolutely counteracts all of that. And it's like, keep them steady. Ideal cadence, in my opinion, is one hour every other week. If you really want to get to, I don't recommend a half an hour every week. And I think this is one of the things that you and I tried also, because it's only enough time to get through tasks. It's like, how are you doing on that project? How are you doing on that project? How are you doing on that project? Great. Okay, good. Let me know if you need anything. That's not a complete one-on-one. The rest of the one-on-one is how are you feeling about your work? Um, what, what's something you're most proud of as of late? 
What are the obstacles you're facing that you think I can help remove? Do you have feedback for me? Um, I have feedback for you on that last thing you did. That, that's where this conversation has to happen. And when things go awry, when people know they have that conversation they can count on, they can hold on to discomfort or frustration until they know the next time they see you. So if our one-on-ones are every Monday and something happens the Thursday before, I can still go home that weekend and go, it'll be fine. We'll talk about it on Monday because I know we'll have that meeting. You know there's a moment coming where there can be some relief for this. But I know organizations that did not do one-on-ones at all. I just can't even understand it. And, I don't and know so what you it, do. it just filled up like this pus-filled cyst <laughs> until it just burst all all over people. And this this is a norm in, in a lot of places, right? Uh, yeah, well, it is. And or even if there are managers who know who know this is an important thing, if the culture around them doesn't support that, it's hard to be the only one who thinks that who asserts that this is important. It right, because you've got to be, justify the time and everyone else right. wants the time for other things. And nobody else has to do these with their manager. And why can't we just get back to work? And why are we talking about our feelings? And why are we... And you're like, well, this is how we're actually going to build professional development plans. The other place that it helps you tremendously is at the end of the year when it's time to write those damn performance reviews, you're not plagued with recency bias. And what happens to most people is because their managers didn't take great notes from January mm-hmm. to... September. They're they're getting reviewed on the last (laughs) six weeks of their job. That's right. That's absolutely right. So if you want to screw up in your job and your manager isn't that great, screw up, you know, January through like July. (laughs) Right, right. Find the holes in the review cycle. Fuck off during all of those. (laughs) And then in the month right before reviews are due, you just come through as the hero (laughs) you've been waiting to be. I can't believe how amazing you are. And of course, that's not the way to run a team or a company. You can't, you can't cram everything to to the last minute. And so what happens is people who are already vulnerable to biases in performance reviews, specifically those of us who are underrepresented in the sector and don't speak the same language, culture, et cetera, as, as their managers can't get that shorthand that says, but don't you remember what I did in February? And your manager goes, oh yeah, yeah, that was really cool. Meanwhile, if you keep a great set of notes, you go, okay, great. For the first three... The review writes itself because you've been writing notes the whole time. That's absolutely right. And when someone comes to you and says, hey, how's so-and-so doing? I saw them the other day and they seemed pretty upset about, you know, something. Is everything okay? And you go, yeah, they're really frustrated about something they're working on. And you've already got a handle on it, right? They're really frustrated. I'm working with them to help unblock what's going on. It's that simple instead of, Oh, no, I don't know. Oh, that person, really emotional. Yeah, you know. Right, and, and now people are ascribing all kinds of their biases <laughs> to them if they're from a That's marginalized right. background, and it That's just right. it goes downhill from there. That's absolutely right. And so the one-on-one is the best check on the system. It is the best check for inclusion, equity, fairness, belonging, retention. Uh, well, and, you know. and also team health, because what you're doing when you're going through and sampling everyone's state on this very regular basis is that if you're paying attention, you can pull out patterns. You can say, okay, well, I'm noticing that a bunch of people are all having the same problem mm-hmm. on my team. That's absolutely and maybe right. it's Why the is sort everybody of, saying they're frustrated? <laughs> right. And, and maybe it's the sort of thing that they're not going to convey in a group setting during a team meeting, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you're seeing everyone kind of confiding in you during mm-hmm. these moments that they're having this same problem, well, that's going to reveal a systems problem that you should probably address. And if you're not doing, if you're not taking the time to get that feedback, you won't know until a catastrophe has been created because this thing wasn't managed. So somebody asked me this question during a, a training, and, and, it, it, and I don't mean to shame anybody. It's not the point of me telling this story, but it's just an illustration of how far we are from understanding how this is just a good business practice. Mm -hmm. The person asked me, okay, great. What if everything about them is great and they're happy and their, you know, professional development is on course and they want to stay and they've got friends and they really like you as a manager, but they can't do the work. Like they're not skilled enough. And I was like, well, no, like, no, this is but not at the by, expense by of... By what premise? <laughs> well, also, by, well, number one, by what premise? Number two, have you tried to help them, you know, 
come along. Somehow they landed on your team. You didn't just go pick a rando off the street. Right. At, at some point in the interview, you decided that this person was skilled enough. So either right. they're not skilled and your interview process is wrong and you fucked up. That's right. Or they are skilled and there's and something in the systems here that right. is holding them back and you fucked up. The, right. the, the end result of either path here is you fucked up, not that this individual <laughs> contributor okay, has fucked so up. Okay, even, so let's even say that they've gone, you know, let's say the manager did everything right, and the manager got them some resources and some extra time and some training, and, and they, they're still just not able to do it. I want to be really clear. In this business, we do have to fire people at a certain point. But you can do it in a way where nobody's shocked, nobody is personally hurt, and people see that there's a path towards redemption is not this like epic failure of their lifetime. And this is the part where your notes come in real handy to say, look, we first talked about this in January. Then in February, you went to the, you know, you went to that training. Then in March, you tried again and you couldn't do that thing. Then I got you a coach in April. Then in May, you try to get, you know what I mean? Then you go, I just can't keep doing this with you. I'm sorry. At a certain point, we need someone who can already do these things. And then you better go back and look at your hiring system, right? Or the premise under which this person was brought in. Or right. how did you inherit them off of another team? Because my guess is someone was just passing the buck. Um, well, and, and this comes to an issue that we see at work a lot, which is mm -hmm. that somehow people have gotten into positions of authority without the ability to have a direct conversation, without the ability to have a confrontation when it's necessary. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and I think that, that it comes from a lot of places, but one of the things that happens is that as we are a sector uh, that is premised on the founder leader, there is no requirement for your ability to manage or have hard conversations or give good feedback before you start a company. There just isn't. But, but that seems like the core competency of somebody who wants to have a company for more than five minutes, right? That is not what they're getting funding on, though. It right. just isn't. It isn't. And I, they're, I know they're getting that there funding are... on like, oh, cool, you know how to write software, you have a vision for software, and you know how to sell to me. Like, like those are the criteria on which people right. get money. That's right. And then, you know, funders will often go back and investors will say, well, we probably should put a grown up on the team now. Who knows? Time for some adult things. supervision. Right. Adult say. supervision or whatever they say. And then you go, oh, okay, well, that wasn't enough because we gave them a COO. Oh, yeah, we need an HR function. People are complaining. All right. I know this company has been going on for, you know, 18 months and it's got 60 people in it, but like, uh, let's get an HR function in there now. So then some, you know, wide-eyed, young, underpaid person comes in and goes, great. And you realize that you've got people problems piling up all over the place. And, and everyone is just living in this culture debt. Like, we've got the notion of technical debt, which is code, which is piling up. It's not the best implementation, and it's causing bugs every time you try to make changes. You need to go in. You need to refactor. you got to change it. Mm -hmm. But you got to take the time to actually do it. And the more technical debt that piles up, the harder mm -hmm. it is to maintain your, your product and your project. And cultural debt works exactly the same way. That is absolutely right. That culture debt, and it's something that, that I think we're going to be using more often to describe the problems that people are facing, I think that is, is, is the correct framing. Because you know we often get asked to come into companies where there is real culture debt but it's hard to explain to them what they should have been doing because they just now are living with the pain of what they didn't do. And, and they so can barely and, perceive the problems around they can, them. Like they feel the problems, but they right. can't see them. It's, it's really that's weird. Right. That's right. And, 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 and I get that, which is why you ask for outside expertise to come in and say, okay, let me tell you where we're going to start. And sometimes I do this with companies and I go, we're going to start with your managers. And when you just give them a place to start, I personally think that is one of the best places to start. Absolutely. So we're going to start with your managers and we're going to develop a theory of management that is in line with your values and what you're trying to get accomplished in the world. And they go, oh, okay. And then you build that. Then you train the managers on it. Then you peg their performance reviews to it and you keep it real simple. 
right? Really simple. Like one of the fundamental questions uh, I, I heard at a company once was, we don't know if a team isn't thriving, is it the manager's responsibility or the team's responsibility to be accountable for that? And I was like, you're still debating that? The answer is the manager. There's just an answer. It's the manager. Right. <laughs> That's the answer. And so backing up, what did you do to promote people or to hire people into a system without expecting that system to function well? Why would you do that? And then you go back to this age-old problem, which is, well, people who were good at one thing or several things as individual contributors are naturally then the managers. And those are two completely unrelated skill sets. That's right. These are not, you can have one and not the other. Very few people have both without significant training and professional development of their own. And it's right. so there's, there's a whole missing professional development mechanism in this, in this industry where we just assume people will learn their way into a job, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. It, it requires thoughtfulness. It requires architecture. Like, like this comes down to, it, it's as laughable as trying to build a large software project without giving any thought to its basic architecture. You just, all right, cool. We're going we're gonna to write a bunch of code. We're going to hope to hell it works. That's right. Maybe that works for a prototype. That doesn't work for a long-term piece of code. And you're going to have to architect that thing at one point or another. And, and, and it all works the same way when it comes to your people stuff. So that's why I love it. So I know we just made it sound like a bummer, but this is why I can geek out on this for a long time. I finally realized that one of the ways I want to describe it is like, you know, there's infra, there's an infrastructure team in Mm -hmm. tech companies. I I want the people infrastructure team or the culture infrastructure. It's like cultural infrastructure. (laughs) Absolutely. This is why engineers adore you so much. Even the ones (laughs) who really don't think that they're going to. (laughs) <laughs> like, I, I, I think one of the ways that you fit so well in engineering cultures is that you come at this from a perspective that is so complementary to how they do their own work. And, and so they mm-hmm. end up with this preconception that you're just going to be this, like, I don't, I don't know, fucking HR lady or, or, or whatever it is that they associate our, our work with. And then you show up and you're like, no, like, I'm, I'm an engineer too, motherfuckers. I just engineer... <laughs> people systems rather than computer systems and we're all going to get along i had a colleague who used to call it alchemy he would just go you know then you're going to go alchemize that thing and then we'll come out with better managers and i was like okay sure but there is a methodology to it thank you for saying that and and one of the things that i think in business school gets people on on my side of the house angry it doesn't bother me one way or the other but the idea to call these soft skills and the other ones hard skills Right. So, so technology. These, these are hard fucking skills to learn. I don't know if <laughs> and, anyone noticed. That's but. right. And that was what the, the our, my favorite organizational behavior professor said. Is She's like, I actually think we should start calling these the hard skills because it's what everybody comes back for. She said the number one class that people come, classes that people come back to, because at, at Haas you get to go back and audit a certain number mm-hmm. of classes a year, which is awesome when, once you're an alum. They come back for the organizational behavior classes. You, you that know, that was my favorite for. class in That's school by far. It's just the best. Like yeah. how people behave in groups in a system is just like infinitely fascinating to me. Um, and it can we, be so fun and joyful. We got a Wait. question from mm. at Kilsey on Twitter about one on ones because we were talking about this uh, this week. Uh, Dave asks, what does it mean when a manager consistently ducks one-on-ones with just one person on their team and not the others? And uh, you and yeah. I had, had a pretty quick the same, consensus yeah. on this. Yeah, what, we did. Go what, ahead. what was the gist of it? Okay, it was, if you have a manager who does one-on-ones with everybody on the team except one person, there is some unresolved something there. Um, it means there may be hard feedback that the manager needs to give to the direct report and really doesn't want to. There may be some leftover stuff from a conflict or one of them doesn't even know they're in a conflict, but the other one does. In this case, the manager would know they're in a conflict, but the, right. the direct report doesn't. No matter how you slice it, it's unfair to the direct report in particular. Right. The, the it, manager really needs to step up in this situation. And, and is, the fact that they aren't right. is a bad sign. That's right. And reminding managers... If there's no other reason why you make more money, it's to think about things like this and to actually do the hard thing and pull your, your big kid pants up and say, all right, we have to have a hard conversation. That's your, right. You, you know, your work isn't up to par. And the problem is the longer it goes, 
the longer the direct report's going to keep doing the same thing and it's That's still right. yielding the same results. And the manager knows it sucks, but the person doing it doesn't know it sucks. That's so not fair. And, and so eventually something's just going to blow up. And, I, and I've been in this position as, as the individual contributor whose manager was just quietly seething but not having the conversation. And it's just, was it, it's so unfair. Was it me? It, was it me? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I have something to tell you. Turn off it, the microphone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now let's let's do this for the show so people can see how it goes. Oh, that would be great. Danilo, yeah. I have some feedback for you. Please. Do you have feedback for me? No, I'm just kidding. I so have. how did you resolve it? Um we 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 just fucking exploded one day and had a tearful conversation. It wasn't it it, it was better than nothing, but like it could have been prevented if we were in a position where we were having more regular conversation. Man. Comes so the moral back of the, the story is, yeah, one-on-ones, regular communication. It's good hygiene for you. It's good hygiene for your team. You will collect better information about what is happening on issues as a whole, and you will be able to take good care of individuals in the process. Everyone wins. Just schedule the damn one-on-one. Win, 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 win. Danilo, we have no conflicts in this show. You and I didn't disagree on anything. We need to find uh, something we disagree on right well, now. Well, may, may, maybe we can beef about net neutrality because... Ooh. I... I don't think so. I think we're going to come out... We're going to land in the same place, but please do uh, okay. your riff. Do okay. your riff. Well, all right. So, so we've got some legislation through the Senate this week to kind of shore up the walls that the entirely regulatorily captured FCC have let crumble here. Uh, net neutrality is not done. That said, I am finding it hard to give a fuck about this particular cause. And, and I say that as a huge <laughs> champion of the internet, of open communication, of, of, of fairness, uh, all of that. Because what, what the net neutrality conversation has really come down to at this point is you got a group of rich people over here in the telcos, mm -hmm. and you've got a group of rich people over here in the internet businesses. And internet freedom is ultimately about the freedom of rich dudes to make themselves a little bit richer using the internet. Like, that's mm -hmm. what this has come down to. That's right. The, the people who were the most pressed about net neutrality didn't have a thing to say when Ferguson happened, mm -hmm. despite the fact that that was about the same principles. Mm -hmm. It was about people's freedom. It was about their ability to speak. It was about the ability of them to get their side of things out and be heard. They, they just, they weren't there for it. So net neutrality to me has this stink of faux activism on it where a whole bunch of people have been Tom Sawyered into painting a fence for venture capitalists. Counterpoint, which, I mean, I mostly agree with what you said. I, I don't, I don't have the same uh, sort of ambivalence. I still think we need to not let stuff like this sneak through. While I think there there are very few people who understand in the general population who understand if net neutrality was not a thing what that would do to things like their phone bills and their internet speeds and their ability to access information later, right? right? So I, the part that I, where I do think we needed to rally around it and make sure that Ajit Pai and this wacky FCC that we currently have doesn't do things that just curry favor with whomever they're interested in currying favor with, in this case, the telecoms, right? And so uh, it is our job, I think, as... as uh, practitioners of the technical arts and those who, you know, are responsible for, for the software that's going to be in people's pockets in, if, over the, the coming years to make sure that things like this don't happen while, while we were asleep at the switch. Because that yes. could have had devastating effects on a technology that we don't know of yet that, that's being developed and that telecom companies are particularly interested in on top of being able to throttle people's speeds and overcharge them. Um, I'm much more interested, though, in connecting the, the, the subject of net neutrality to connectivity itself. 
Right. And if we were talking about net neutrality is fundamental, having internet access in your home is fundamental, then I feel like now we're like having a conversation, you know? Right, Be- because we've got a, a desperate state of rural broadband in this country. Right and urban now. broadband in some senses. It, it's not much better, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. living in New York, one of the most city, beefy cities <laughs> in the history of the world and a lot of folks in the city have only one choice for broadband mm-hmm. access and and that's mm-hmm. better than rural america where where sometimes it's no choice but it's still not great so like yes let's let's make sure that the telecoms can't make netflix more expensive for people mm-hmm. but let let's go even further and like make sure that more people can get it connected to the internet that that's the thing that's going to get me up in the morning I'm a lot more concerned about that myself. I am I am too. And you know, it's something that you and I have both worked on and and it's where you actually started in your your journey towards being an engineer was first figuring out how to get internet in your home, right? Oh yeah. That, I mean, that's I, how you you did this. I was but... spending like 6 months trying to figure out how to make the modem dial up into AOL correctly and it was this whole ordeal and it was up to me <laughs> to figure out and, and I eventually did it. But, but yeah, like that, that was my first big technical problem at the age of like <laughs> nine years old, I think. That's right. And, and it wasn't something your mom was particularly interested in. And yeah, it was, there, you... there, was, there was no one around me who was going to figure it out. Now, ironically, <laughs> once I did figure it out, fucking everyone wanted to use the computer <laughs> at that point. Uh, but that's a whole other thing. I remember those years. Ugh. I remember those years when you, you knew who among your friends had, and I was an adult already, and mm-hmm. who among your friends had a computer at home with internet access. Because that, like, that's a problem solver right there. Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, and I did. I was, I was our person as well when I was living in Boston. Uh, good hanging with you. I appreciate you spending time with us. I hope that you will send us questions. We've got a link in the show notes so that you can send us your own question about the workplace. We'll do our best to answer it for you. And uh, we'll be back very soon with more fun things to say about work. Thanks for hanging out. Thank you.